thoughts. But first, we start on a similar tone to the show, how it started yesterday. Yesterday at this time, we were talking about some new information about the couple who had traveled to the Yukon and jumped the queue to get the first dose of the Moderna vaccine. And many people are now questioning what the punishment should be, what the punishment will be for that couple, and if there will be any changes to the penalties in this province for people who are caught breaking public health orders. Let's bring on Mike Farnworth. He is BC's Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, I know you've uh, already been quoted as using a bit of colourful language when talking about the couple caught in the Yukon, but wanted to ask you again your response to learning about this particularly brazen and complicated way of queue jumping. I was just absolutely disbelief. Um, the complete lack of any any ethical um, or moral compass by these individuals in what was clearly a deliberate, planned attempt to to circumvent. I mean, it, it, it's just beyond belief. It's it, it's like entitlement and privilege to just the nth degree, and it's just obscene. Uh, I know that uh, they have been fined. Uh, he has lost his multi-million dollar per year job. But do you think there are needs? Uh, there is a need for tougher penalties if people are caught doing something like this? Um, well, I'll make a couple of points. I mean, first, this happened in Yukon, which is, of course is outside BC's jurisdiction, and I know the Yukon authorities are, are investigating. Um, the individual, as you point out, has lost a, uh, you know, a $10 million job, which is, I, I don't think there's any provincial penalty that could, could, could match that. But having said that, we do have in this province and the alignment, uh, we've realigned the, uh, the fine structure uh, in this province so it goes under the Emergency Program Act. And so the police now have the ability to do what's called the long-form prosecution, which means that, that they can uh, talk to the prosecutorial service in B.C. It would go to a judge who can then assess uh, a penalty of up to $10,000 uh, and jail time as well. Uh, it's a bit more com- complicated, but it's an additional tool that the police have to be able to deal with particularly uh, egregious, uh, egregious cases. Um, and then outside of that, I mean, in this case, I think the public shaming, which we have seen, which is which has gone international now, um, is, you know, I mean, that's a form of punishment that, uh, you know, no province is, is able to impose, but certainly one, the public backlash um, is right out there. And I think most people think that that is well deserved. Uh, so as far as an investigation, and you mentioned in the Yukon, is there that investigative uh, piece being done here in BC as well? Um, that's it's it, the offense happened in Yukon, so they would be the ones who would be doing an investigation. And if there, if you know, there was a requirement for BC, obviously BC would be would cooperate. Uh, uh, you know, and if there were resources that BC needed, then then obviously they would be there. Uh, but when something like that happens in BC, the police have the ability to uh, to investigate. Uh, and they said not just the the two hundred and thirty dollar fine or the twenty three hundred dollar fine, but they can, depending on the nature of the offense. Uh, face, you know, uh, criminal code sanctions, um, as we've seen some cases where individuals have been violent or have, have uh, you know, uh, engaged in assault, they face those, those charges can, uh, can then uh, be laid. Um, plus, there are other penalties and consequences that can come out of this kind of behavior. So, for example, in an apartment building, the, the, the landlord may have something to say if an owner is renting a place, or a strata may have something to say if you run afoul a, a of, of city bylaws of operating an illegal business, for example. 
those kinds of things can also come into place. So there can be a multiple of, of, uh, of offenses and tickets uh, that can be, uh, that can be uh, uh, issued. Uh, those things uh, take a bit longer, though, and it's more of a process. Do you think it would send a more clear message if people who were caught breaking the rules, and you mentioned parties, so we heard from Vancouver police yesterday, they shut down uh, what they described as a booze can at a downtown condo. Would it send a stronger message if the fines were more and immediate? Well, one of the challenges that we face is that the that process is part of our is part of our judicial system so the sign the, the fines have to be commensurate with the administrative uh, with, with what's called administrative process that's why we have done a realignment um, of the fine structure so that they're aligned with the fines under the emergency program act and that now allows the police to actually issue um, the uh, the what's called as I said what's called the long form prosecutor prosecution it takes a bit more time but it can result in a a much uh, more significant um, uh, fine as well as uh, potential jail time I, I know of people in Ontario, and I get that the situation in Ontario is worse as far as the numbers, but they were pulled over. Their ID was checked to see if they lived in the same household. Even though they did, they were given a stern talking to by the officer who pulled them over, saying there's no need for you both to be going grocery shopping. You shouldn't be both going. One of you should stay in the car. One of you should go home. Uh, do you suggest or do you support something like that as far as we hear from people every day uh, that they see people in restaurants who clearly aren't in the same household? They see people in social settings that are breaking the public health order. Do we need more enforcement? We've got a significant uh, amount of enforcement that is taking place already. Um, And I think, you know, we have seen the vast majority of people in this province do do the right thing. Uh, And we've seen it in the the results that we are seeing uh, in terms of, you know, cases and, and hospitalizations and all of those things that we have been, I think we've been, we've done a, 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 we've, People in this province have really taken that to heart. There's always that minority, uh, and we are seeing it in terms of police doing uh, enforcement. They do the, the, you know, the give people a stern talking to. If they don't listen, then they go and they get a ticket. I mean, I think at the last count, there's been over 700 uh, tickets issued. The majority of those tickets are for um, such things as, as not wearing a mask in, uh, in a public place. Um, there have also been, under the Quarantine Act, um, I think, 80 um, violations and the violating the quarantine act has significant um, uh, penalties uh, in it. So all of those things are, things are in place. And I think the police have been doing the job that, that they need to be doing. I think what needs to happen is, is that when we see what these individuals in these, you know, like this booze can with all these people is that, that we're doing the maximum prosecution that we are, that we are able to do. And one other question. Yesterday, as you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry said we need to now more than ever uh, do our part to bend this curve back down. She urged people to stay home. Uh, It's a bit of a different message, though, when you walk around neighborhoods and see gyms back open, restaurants are open. And yes, I I agree with you. The the vast majority of people are doing the right thing. I, I would suggest those who aren't probably didn't watch the briefing yesterday and aren't interested in the message. Is there a possibility that we will see stricter and tougher restrictions in this process? I mean, as, as Dr. Bonnie Henry has said, you know, if, if we if we don't bend that curve down, if we don't follow those orders, then and you start seeing the cases is going up, then you will see tighter restrictions, um, you know, and we've seen that in other areas. And I don't think any of us want that. And that's why we need to keep following and 
it's frustrating and sometimes it's difficult. And I think all of us get that. But I also know we've come this far and with the vaccines and, you know, that light at the end of the tunnel, I think we just need to is keep doing what we're doing, as we as has been said all along. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Do you know what those restrictions might be, though? Those would be decided by uh, by uh, doctor by Doctor Henry um, if she felt that there's a need to tighten to tighten restrictions, um, you know, and, and she would be the one that would make those decisions as to as to what they should be. So at this point, though, there's no plan as far as the fines go to up the fines or to bring in some tougher penalties. At, at this point, the, the fines are there in place. What we have done, and it, it, it's just a, a, a number of weeks ago, is align those fines with the Emergency Program Act that allows the police now to do an even stiffer um, uh, prosecution by what's called you know, the, the, the long form, which means that Crown can pursue and a judge can put in place a penalty of up to $10,000 as, well as, um, uh, as well as jail time. All right. We're out of time, so we'll have to talk insurance another day. But Mike Farnworth, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Well, yesterday during the program, that uh, much-anticipated report on BC's response to COVID-19, specifically in long-term care facilities, was released. And this is a report that was actually done. It was finished back in October, a couple of days before the election call, but just released yesterday after the health ministry, Minister Adrian Dix, was pressured by news media that uh, to, to do exactly that, release this report. So let's bring in Dan Le- He's the executive director at Tabor Village. Dan, thanks so much for being on the program once again. Great to be here, Jill. Have you read the report? I read the report from cover to cover. (laughs) All right. So what is your response as somebody who runs long-term care facilities? Well, I I was really pleased to see the report come out. Um, We know that things have changed. The landscape changed um, the past number of months. Um, We know this report was... um, commissioned in in the spring and took place in the summer and uh, we know it was um, completed in the fall um, before really the the second uh, wave unfortunately took hold of many care homes and led to uh, that many more outbreaks and um, sadly um, many deaths Um, so we know the context has changed but I was really happy to see um, that spotlight is focused on doing a review at this level and I'm hoping that there'll be further reviews that will shed more light on um, the lessons learned and moving forward what we can do better in the future. Uh, one of the, there's so many uh, policy findings and there are recommendations, which we'll get to. Uh, one of uh, the findings that stuck out for me and uh, it reads, messaging and communication was sometimes inconsistent across health authority owned and operated versus private and affiliates, which caused confusion and led to inconsistent practices from staff and providers. So what do you say to that? Well, I, I think there's um, that's a tough criticism. I think um, um, we're all learning in this together as we go through. And uh, where where we where there is some ambiguity, we we looked at those those issues, and then we we thought we would do what was best, and we would consult with the health authority to get clarification, consult with other providers. And I think at the end of the day, um, we did what was in the best interest of our organization, of the seniors, of the families and the staff to protect everybody and to reduce the likelihood of the virus coming in and if it did come in to protect um, those who weren't already infected and make sure it was controlled effectively. 
Uh, one of the other findings was that in cases where there were groups and uh, such that were in charge of PPE, in charge of pandemic planning, knowing that at some point we would be dealing with a pandemic, but found when we were dealing with one, uh, in many cases, the, the, the amount of PPE was either expired or non-existent. That seems like something that, that should have been easy to make sure that there was PPE available for an emergency. Yeah, it, it, seems, it seems that way. However, I think practically um, we, we ran into some challenges just um, provincially, federally. Um, we remember um, a year ago um, when we were talking about PPE, um, we were still learning about a lot of this, and uh, we had issues with procurement, um, getting supplies into the country. If you remember, we were getting those daily reports. Um, it was almost similar to what's going on right now with the vaccines, um, not them not being available. But we, you know, we're expecting um, more vaccines to become available in the months ahead, and uh, we'll, we ha- had the same experience with PPE, um, where, where um, we, did, we, we were able to province to stockpile, and from a facility point of view, um, we always had at least seven days available to us, plus our emergency supply on top of that. Uh, we've talked a lot about single, the single site order policy because we realized pretty early on in the pandemic that one of the problems was if you had a healthcare worker that was working at several sites, if that worker became infected, that was one of the key ways that this virus could and did spread. Uh, there is criticism of that policy in that it wasn't implemented quickly, uh, that in many cases the workers were still allowed to be doing, say, home care or other type work, so they weren't actually single site workers. Uh, how are we doing as far as the single site? policy now? Well, I think it's working effectively in terms of um, ensuring that there's um, not spread from co-workers going from one care home uh, to another. Um, we do know that there's kind of some gray areas where people are working in, in other places where potentially they could uh, move the virus back and forth and forward. But I think th- there's so many different um, nuances to the single site order that practically, I mean, in order to uh, restrict the main um, risk, which was care home to care home, um, that has been managed well, and uh, yes, th- there were some challenges initially, and uh, I think the industry as a whole took a proactive approach, and uh, where we could, we, we tried to um, um, disinhibit um, workers from going from site to site and really encourage them to choose um, a site um, before the single site order came out. Do you think if this report had been issued, sorry, had been released sooner after it was issued in October, in the towards the end of October, would this have led to better policy? Could this have saved lives? Uh, potentially, um, but I really think what we should be doing is looking at the report and saying, what are the lessons in there? What are the policies um, there that are recommended, the changes that we're looking at, and really focus on those. And yes, there are things we can do um, immediately um, going forward, and there are the long-term um, recommendations, which I think are really important. Um, there's four main recommendations um, that they're talking about, um, infection prevention control expertise, in, in improving that within um, care homes, um, looking at how we manage and, pre- and procure uh, PPE, and of course the health human resource aspect about having um, more staff available and professionalizing the workforce. Um, this has been an underappreciated um, uh, profession, the care aides and the personal support workers. We really have to make sure that that healthcare uh, hero status is always there. And I think the biggest thing we can do really um, is the new buildings, um, replacing um, the, the outdated infrastructure um, that perhaps um, has been one of the biggest challenges in controlling the, uh, the virus. When you have um, ventilation systems that are you know, ill-equipped or room layouts looking at um, common space for cohorting, so they really think we have to reimagine 
and uh, an action, the replacement of, of the outdated home so we can support people who have dementia. Which is certainly something that I know people are looking at and looking to the future. But then we also have so many issues right now, uh, even talking to people who are essential visitors who haven't been vaccinated yet, still can't see their loved ones. How do we deal with that isolation and the fact that we're still seeing that scenario in so many long-term care facilities? Yeah, that's a big challenge. I'm a huge challenge. We would like to see um, every single senior living in care have uh, an essential visitor, a designated visitor, somebody who has that meaningful relationship with them, um, both socially and perhaps also part of, of their care planning. Uh, before COVID, um, we had our front doors were, were, were always open. Uh, there were no such thing as visiting hours. Um, you could come and go as you pleased. And then um, almost a year ago, we shut it down altogether, and uh, it's changed dramatically since. It's really important, as you said, um, we've got to vaccinate um, everybody who's willing um, to be vaccinated for, as an essential visitor. We need at least 85% amongst um, staff and visitors and, and the residents and uh, making sure that that um, human interaction, which is so critical for all of us, uh, we really need that, that to happen. Um, and they, the, the family members really need to be perceived as part of the care team. Um, when we are only funded for the resident, but that doesn't mean that the family members aren't a critical component um, of the care and, and the team. And we've got to make sure that they're um, back in and part of our, our dynamic and create that kind of community that we all would be proud to call home. And Dan, I just wanted to ask you as well, something else that Dr. Henry talked about yesterday was the uh, acute or sorry, severe, I think the word was shortage of vaccine. Uh, We know this week we're not getting any from Pfizer. She talked about uh, that very uh, limited resource that we're going to have for uh, the future until we get more vaccine. Is that having an impact on making sure that uh, residents of long-term care facilities that you know of uh, are getting their, at least getting their first doses? Well, I, I do know that the, uh, the first doses were, were provided for um, most of the care homes that I'm familiar with, um, and I'm proud to say that um, uh, last week um, we started getting our second doses, so uh, many staff members already had their second dose. And uh, um, I think that the rollout of, of having the prioritization of long-term care and assisted living being at the front of the line, that really is an ethical, the right decision to make. And uh, I'm confident that um, as soon as the vaccine um, arrives in in BC, that the second doses will be provided um, to all the residents and to the essential visitors, and we can um, get back to the new normal as soon as possible. But it is a concern about the vaccinations not being available, but I am very confident and very pleased to see that long-term care and seniors, especially those over 80, are being prioritized as the groups of people that should be at the front of the line. All right, Dan, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much. Always good to have you on the program. Anytime, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, earlier today, as you know, as you've been hearing on the news, it was announced there is a new online insurance estimator. It's a tool people in BC who drive can use to determine how much money they will save when the no-fault insurance system comes into effect in BC in May. The tool is very user-friendly. All you need is have uh, your driver's license and your plate number. And as you use the tool... You can also look at how changes that you may want to make to your coverage will affect your savings and premiums. For example, if you have a new driver in the family who's going to be driving your vehicle, or you want to uh, add or adjust optional coverage. 
That was Mike Farnworth speaking at that news conference earlier today, saying on average drivers in B.C. will be saving about 20 percent or about $400 a year. But what exactly does a no-fault insurance system look like? Let's bring in Michael Mulligan, lawyer with Mulligan Defence Lawyers based in Victoria. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I know uh, some lawyers and the Trial Lawyers Association, when this was first announced that BC was moving to a no-fault system, uh, put forward some concerns. You could say, what are your thoughts on moving to a no-fault insurance model? Uh, Well, there certainly are some reasons to be uh, concerned with the change. Uh, Effectively, what it does is it turns what we uh, previously had, which was a system whereby if somebody... um, injured you, when was careless and hurt you or damaged your property, you would be able to um, sue them to be compensated for that. Under the uh, this no-fault system, it will effectively turn all car accidents into the equivalent of what people may have experienced if you've ever had a WCB uh, claim, now called WorkSafe BC, uh, where rather than Uh, being able to get compensation from the person who was responsible for uh, the accident. Um, uh, Your medical and other costs uh, would be uh, paid for, and they would be paid for regardless of uh, who caused the accident, whether you were the innocent person who was injured or whether you were the person who uh, caused the accident. Um, And there's no doubt there's some uh, savings to be had, Um, if you no longer uh, spend uh, time trying to figure out who was responsible for something. So there's no doubt uh, there's money to be saved there. Uh, But as a person who's a a driver and who might be injured, there is real cause for concern about the fairness of the system uh, and the the autonomy that it would provide somebody. Um, If you are unhappy with a decision uh, from ICBC, In the past, you would have been able to go to court and have an independent uh, judge determine what would be fair. Under the uh, no-fault system, uh, your only real recourse would be to this body called the Civil Resolution Tribunal. And the challenge with that is that the people who are on that, unlike judges, are not independent of the government. They're appointed on uh, short-term contracts. Um, And so... um, some advice people may want to consider if they do wind up um, saving some uh, money is you you may wish to consider getting your own uh, private disability insurance. Uh, My wife and I uh, both uh, got that in place, um, and uh, the advantage of that is that you wouldn't be uh, beholden uh, to ICBC like you would be in a WCB uh, claim, Um, and so uh, people may wish to consider uh, getting their own uh, insurance if you don't want to be in um, in that position in the future if you're uh, unfortunate and are injured. In cases, though, and uh, I, I always uh, have found the the title of this a bit odd, that no-fault insurance, because uh, there, it's always someone's fault, and that's uh, partly why ICBC calls them crashes and not accidents. But when we are looking to the future under this model, if it's a criminal act, say a drunk driver hits you, that's going to be exempt, isn't it? Uh, That is true. Um, If there is somebody who's convicted criminally, you would have the opportunity to sue uh, that person. Uh, But in other cases, if somebody is simply not paying attention or driving in a reckless way and they uh, hurt you, uh, you would not be able to sue them, uh, and they would be treated the same as the uh, innocent person who was injured. 
the other thing to be aware of, and I must say I chuckled as I uh, reviewed this uh, ICBC tool site, is that the site implies that there's been some uh, increase uh, in the insurance coverage that you would miraculously get uh, for less money. Uh, not surprisingly, that's really quite misleading. Uh, we have had in British Columbia for many years now uh, uh, some version of uh, no-fault insurance in the sense that um, y- even if you were somebody who was reckless and caused an accident, you would still have your medical expenses and rehabilitation expenses paid for uh, by ICBC under what's been referred to as Part 7 benefits. So those would be things you could get even if you caused the accident. And what they've done is they've essentially taken those and greatly expanded them, but then removed almost completely the ability to um, sue the person who caused the accident uh, to receive whatever compensation a judge might conclude was appropriate. Uh, And so you should not be misled into thinking that uh, somehow uh, the government's found a magic way to turn what was described as a financial dumpster fire uh, into a uh, you know a slot machine that's somehow uh, paying out uh, money to people. You will pay less, but you're getting less insurance. Um, and if you are uh, concerned about the the possibility that um, you could be seriously uh, injured and unable to support your family or pay your bills, uh, you may be well served by using some of the money that you might save in this to purchase your own uh, disability coverage so that you're not left short uh, or left in a position where you are uh, completely beholden uh, to ICBC with no uh, good or meaningful uh, mechanism to appeal uh, decisions they might uh, make about your life. What do you say to the argument that one of the main reasons that lawyers don't like this model is because they don't make as much money because it takes out the chance or the opportunity for people to hire a lawyer and sue? Well, I think that's uh, certainly a a popular argument from a political perspective. Um, That has no impact on me. I'm a criminal lawyer, and so I deal frequently with people who may have been injured and are dealing with the ICBC system, so I'm, I'm well familiar with it. Uh, but I don't have a financial interest in it. Um, And so while I understand that, uh, that's a a popular way to portray things, sort of like uh, this website uh, suggesting that somehow you're getting more insurance for less money, Um, that's just not the reality of it. Uh, The reality of it is that uh, you will be under this no-fault regime uh, effectively uh, beholden uh, to ICBC and they will be able to make uh, decisions about uh, your life and the compensation you'd be receiving and and so on in a way that will be not meaningfully reviewable. Um, And that's really not fair. Um, The the current model uh, allows you to go to a a judge who is completely independent of the government uh, if you have a dispute with what ICBC thinks is fair. Under this no-fault system, uh, that will be gone. Uh, And so if if ICBC makes some decision about how much compensation you should be given or the treatment you should be receiving if you're hurt, um, your uh, options to have that reviewed will be extremely limited and in many cases limited to going to this civil resolution tribunal that's not independent of government. And so uh, that doesn't seem like a fair uh, approach either. You know, if if you had a dispute with your neighbor... You wouldn't want somebody that your neighbor employs deciding 
uh, whether the, the resolution of the dispute was fair or not. Uh, people should have uh, an option to go uh, to an independent body like a court uh, when there is a dispute, uh, and that's being taken away here, and, and I'm concerned that uh, that may uh, also uh, result in unfairness. The, the other big-picture fairness issue um, sort of goes to what this is re- really is, which is no fault. Uh, and so that's another, I think, important consideration for people in terms of the public policy. Do you want to have a system where if somebody is uh, reckless and dangerous and hurts you, uh, that they should be responsible for it, right? If you want that, it, it does take some time and effort in some cases to sort out were they reckless and responsible for the accident. If you don't want to do that, you can certainly save some time and some money, uh, but you perhaps give up something there in terms of um, fairness, right? You, you can imagine if you were seriously hurt by somebody else who wasn't uh, paying attention or driving carefully, uh, you, you might think twice about whether it's fair that they would be treated uh, in just exactly the same way uh, you would be. And so that's another sort of big picture fairness question that people need to uh, consider when they think about whether this is a good uh, approach or not. We are talking no-fall insurance. My guest, lawyer Michael Mulligan, has agreed to stay on and take your questions. A lot of people trying to get through with questions will go right to the phone lines. And Seth is on the line. Seth, what is your question? Hi there. Yeah, I had a car accident back in 2017. Um, Is this a new change with ICBC able to go back, uh, even though I have a lawsuit with ICBC and I have lawyers and whatnot, an ongoing case? Will it be able to go back and change it? That's a good question. Uh, no, it's not uh, not retroactive. Uh, it will be going forward. Um, and, uh, in fact, one of the interesting things about the fact that there's this changeover, and it explains in part why the government uh, would be able to send out rebate checks, um, is that in the past when you've had a system whereby you would get compensation from the person who caused the accident, there would be a pool of money called reserves, insurance reserves, that would be used to, to pay out those future claims. But uh, because this new model will involve uh, doling out money each month, like you might get under a workers' compensation uh, claim, uh, those will not be required in the same way. And so that, in part, explains uh, why you're able to get money out of a financial uh, dumpster fire, uh, but that will only be uh, going forward from the time of the change. All right, Seth, thanks for the question. Appreciate that. Let's uh, go to uh, Wayne. Wayne, what is your question? Hi, my question for Joe is, what is the situation when a uh, vehicle strikes a cyclist? Uh, They would be covered under the uh, no-fault system as well. That's been thought of and has been covered. Uh, There will still be, uh, however, as part of this scheme, Uh, third-party liability insurance, which is what you would have purchased previously in the event that you were uh, caused an accident. And you would need that, for example, if you were driving uh, outside of the province and got into an accident, uh, because unlike in BC, you could still be sued if you did that. And so that's one of the reasons why there would, uh, you would still need that kind of liability. So as a cyclist, should uh, we be purchasing additional insurance in case we get struck by a vehicle? Uh, if you don't want to be uh, treated uh, like you would currently be treated by the Workers' Compensation Board people, my advice would be yes. Uh, if you think wow. you're treated fairly by 
uh, WCB or WorkSafe BC and you think that ICBC will always treat you in a fair fashion, uh, then you can take your chances. You, you just won't well, that's have much of an oxymoron, but thank you. All right, Wayne, thanks uh, for the question. Appreciate that. Let's go uh, to Randy in Surrey. What's your question? If you uh, have to buy additional insurance, where is the savings? <laughs> Obviously, the coverage is not, you know, uh, and you're saving 20%. Well, my compared BC insurance with my Alberta insurance, I'm overcharged here by 40%. So if I have to buy additional disability insurance in case of a life-altering accident, where's the benefit to this? I still have to spend my money that I'm supposedly saving to buy additional insurance. I think the truth of it is that many people won't purchase that kind of insurance and they won't find out what they're not getting uh, unless and until they wind up in a position where they are uh, very seriously injured. I think that's the truth of it. Just like now, there are people who might uh, purchase the minimum possible uh, insurance to lawfully drive a car. That might be allowed. It would just be imprudent. And so uh, I think there will be uh, less money spent by many people, but make no mistake, you will have less insurance. All right, let's uh, try to get to a couple more callers. Alex, uh, what is your question for Michael? So in this scenario that I'm struck by another vehicle while I'm in my vehicle, I'm hurt, I'm injured, but I can still go to work and make money. I don't lose any income, but I I can't bowl anymore. I can't ride my bike anymore. You know, I, I can't, you know, go swimming anymore because of the injury, but I haven't actually lost any money. How, how would I be compensated for my loss of life enjoyment? Not very well. Uh, the, the, the model would include payment for things like if you had to go to physiotherapy uh, or if there were medical expenses, uh, something like that uh, you would incur. Uh, those would be uh, covered, uh, but uh, that would be that. Uh, and whatever ICBC determined was appropriate is what you would receive. And if you didn't like it, uh, your option would go to be to go to this civil resolution uh, tribunal, and that would be that. Um, and that's why my advice would be to consider uh, putting in place your own uh, insurance in the event that uh, you wind up uh, hurt more seriously than that. All right. Thanks for the questions. And my apologies if you didn't get through on the open line. Uh, if you want to email me your question, we will do our best to get the answer for you. Again, my apologies if you didn't get through. Michael Mulligan, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Drive safely. Well, for the past year, many things, as you know, have gone virtual. Some work better than others. But this next story shows how you can really reach reach through a screen and things can feel a whole lot better. Talking about pet therapy sessions, and these particular sessions have been taking place at Vancouver's Mount St. Joseph Hospital. They started because the pandemic stopped the in-person sessions of pet therapy. Joining me now to talk a bit more about how this is working is Stuart Ma, volunteer at Mount St. Joseph residents. Stuart, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. We saw, well, my being a dog lover too, when I first saw a picture of Nugget, I immediately fell in love with your dog. Tell us a little bit about Nugget's background. Well, um, Nugget's, uh, well, first of all, I'd like to say, Joe, that I'm, I'm a little bit humbled by the, the celebrity status that, that Nugget's been getting uh, for <laughs> the past couple of weeks. It's been uh, it's been quite, uh, we've been quite taken back, Mitch. so we're very humbled by it. I'm very humbled by it uh, because it's really something I really enjoy doing. And uh, I know that uh, there's a lot of credit to be given to in terms of 
the supporting cast that I have in terms of making this all happen. And um, like I said, it's uh, I think it's a team effort. And so I really love to give kudos to all those have re- that have really helped and supported us through uh, uh, the time that uh, I adopted Nugget. Um, anyways, I, I did... Um, I did get Nugget back in 2014. Nugget hails from uh, La Quilams. It's an indigenous community close to Prince Rupert. And um, when I rescued him or adopted him, um, it was obvious that the family there was very, very caring for him because of his very calm and, and well-behaved demeanor. Um, so so really, just so much as, um, as, as Nugget, Nugget has been just totally chill with us and he's been great around the neighborhood and all the kids and the, the other dogs love him, except for the cats and squirrels. They don't like him too much. <laughs> Fair um, enough. <laughs> um, you know, it, I, we, we kind of figured that it was a, you know, Nugget's calling really was um, to to be shared with others and to, um, for those that really seek companionship. So, um, you know, we, we took the steps, uh, you know, in the, in the first three years to, to make sure that Nugget was, uh, uh, you know, really uh, well grounded in, in Vancouver and, uh, and really, you know, being enjoying a very good quality of life uh, as, a, as a city dog. And so how did Nugget get involved then with pet therapy, with pet therapy, with the BC Pets and Friends? Well, you know, it's it's funny because I know in, in, three years later, 2017, um, you know, my daughter and I decided that, uh, you know, we wanted to get uh, Nugget enrolled in, in pet therapy. So we did go through Pets and Friends and, uh, you know, we were very fortunate to uh, meet up with Katie over there and uh, and uh, had uh, Nugget tested out, making sure that, uh, you know, if, uh, if a, like a wheelchair or something or umbrella, uh, you know, went in front of him that he wouldn't spook or anything. And, and Nugget, like, he's totally chill. Like, he just, like, nothing's happened. So he was an ideal candidate for pet therapy. Um, and then second to that, uh, you know, Mount St. Joseph, and I can't say enough about them, uh, you know, the uh, volunteer resource coordinator, uh, Mary, uh, you know, we, we were interviewed by her and she met Nugget. She obviously fell in love with Nugget. What's not to love about him? <laughs> and uh, there was an immediate impact there. Um, so Nugget and I were, were given, you know, quite quite a bit of freedom in terms of uh, going to the second floor residence there and, and having good face-to-face interaction uh, with, with the seniors there. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it was great for me to see that because... Um, you know, it has such a calming effect on people. And um, I always notice the eye to eye contact between the seniors and Nugget. And, uh, you know, it was it was just mesmerizing in many ways, Joe. I, um, I, I really wish I could have taken pictures. But again, I'm not, you know, due to confidentiality, I'm, I'm not able to. But, you know, it, it's, it's definitely ingrained in my in my brain in terms of, um, you know, just how, how much how quality those those moments were, um, you know, the human to canine touch. It's just so important to to increase the calmness and happiness of, of of people, and of course, Nugget really loved it himself as well. I mean, he he loves the attention. He's a he's kind of a big suck for that. <laughs> Perfect quality in a therapy dog. <laughs> um, so when you talk about that too, that that eye contact and that person to canine contact, were you wary about going virtual using iPads, wondering if you would still be able to make that contact? Well, you know, that's a really good question, Joe. Um, you know, I, I, I have to admit I was a bit leery about it, and I wasn't too sure what the effect was. But, um, you know, I know by going virtual, I think all of us kind of have to think outside the box, CJs, with the pandemic. And I kind of, uh, you know, bounced it off of, um, 
of uh, the crew at Mount St. Joseph's. And, and uh, you know, they, they said they had iPads over there. And I thought, well, that's great. It's a bigger screen because I, I only have a small iPhone myself. So um, I, I guess my goal, Joe, was, was to make sure that the, the residents, um, through the lack of, of losing the, the personal touch, would have a, a, a more virtual experience of, of Nugget being with them. So um, I really do appreciate the rehab assistant, Mylene, for on the other side there for being able to uh, to man the the iPads over there and and making sure that the residents can see Nugget. And um, you know, from some of the pictures that I've seen, it's just, it's heartwarming. I mean, um, you know, I'm getting responses from a lot of my friends saying that the, the way that Nugget uh, the, the way that Nugget uh, reacts, uh, you know, on the on the screen as well as looking at the 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 seniors and how they touch the screen, um, you know, it, it, it does bring a tear to your eye. And, uh, you know, I, I guess really what my goal now is, is really to keep momentum momentum going and uh, placing Nugget in different uh, settings so that it further simulates the, the, the seniors. So, you know, I've gone from my, you know, my, uh, my work area remotely at home. I've, I've gone to uh, the kitchen. I've gone to my workplace. I've gone to dog parks. Um, so, you know, those are kind of the fun things that I, I'm doing in terms of, you know, letting the, the seniors know that, you know, you know, hey, it, it's it's nice. I'm being welcomed in, in Nuggets world, so to speak. So um, it's, it's a very gratifying experience. And is that challenging doing that in that instead of that kind of connection that you would have in person with the dog? It seems like it's more, I think, as you just said, kind of the, the people in the hospital are being taken along on a little journey with Nugget and get to experience that. Well, well, it definitely is different. It's different. And again, um, you know, of course, I would much rather be, I'm a more touchy-feely person. I'd much rather have Nugget be there and, and entertaining the, uh, the seniors there. And in addition to that, you know, Nugget was also entertaining the, much of the staff at, at MSJ, too. So they were quite used to seeing him, you know, just uh, saunter around the hallways, you know, with me and, uh, you know, making our personal visit. So, you know, it's definitely, um, you know, a, a lot more um, spontaneous, I think, being in person. But for the virtual part of things, you know, I, I am, you know, throughout the week, I am planning about what I want to do and, and, and how I would like to, to interact with the uh, um, with the seniors um, over, <laughs> over Christmas. Um, I couldn't think of something else to do. And, and we were inside and uh, we were talking to, to one of the seniors there and, um, uh, Mylene said, "Hey, well, you know, the, you know, Mrs. J can can sing Jingle Bells," and I said, "Great!" And so she sang Jingle Bells. I sang along with her, and she sounded a lot better than me. Um, <laughs> you know, those are the type of interactions that really what I'm looking for. And and uh, again, you know, I hate to say it, but I, I I'm probably being quite selfish when I say this. But when we went virtual, I think I I think I probably benefited just as much as the seniors did because. Um, um, you know, started at the pandemic. I, uh, you know, I, I was kind of getting a little bit antsy because I, I missed the routine of um, seeing the uh, the residents on a weekly basis. And uh, my daughter asked me, uh, you know, why don't you reach out to them, you know, uh, with a sign? And uh, you know, and, and so I made up a sign, and it's it's on the. Uh, I think if you search on the on the website there, you'll see it. And it's a sign that says "See you soon." And would Nugget and I are there. And, that did make me feel better, but that was really kind of the start of, of going virtual and, and where the idea started. Uh, you know, why not use technology and social media to to reach out to the people that you love and care about? 
It's And it's working. It looks like it's working so well at this point. Stuart, we'll leave it there. I look forward to when you can get Nugget back and you back into long-term care. But in the meantime, this is such a great way of bridging that gap. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it. Thanks again for having me.